morning, church. How we doing? Good? Good. Am I on? There we go. There we go. Hey, my name is Peter. If you're new with us, uh, I'm a pastor here at, uh, at FB Hanford. We're glad that you're here with us. Everybody have an okay week? We do okay this week? I had a great week uh, because I wasn't at work all week. Um, my, my wife and myself and our five boys, we went on vacation um, to, uh, to kind of settle in from the, uh, the transition that we've had in the past couple months and get back to kind of family stuff. And so we went to Bryce Canyon, we went to Zion National Park, we went to the Grand Canyon all in three days. Um, <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're a little sleepy, uh, specifically those of us who drove the 1,400 miles. Um, but, uh, but it was a great week and a great opportunity, honestly, for us to be able to get back to those things that, that we really care about, those things that really matter, which is essentially our family. And so I share that with you because we are going to be starting a series next week called Family Matters. Um, and this is a great opportunity for us to really look at uh, family dynamics and what scripture says about our families. And this isn't just for people who, who have young kids or kids who are teenagers. This can be people who are single and, and hope to have a family one day or people who, who do have young kids who are keeping them up at night and crawling into bed in the middle of the night to interrupt your REM sleep. Uh, it could be people who have completely and totally raised kids and now we're trying to figure out their place in the family as a grandparent or as a great-grandparent. So this is a great opportunity. We're going to take a few weeks to look at that, specifically uh, family matters. And so if, uh, if you have people who are in your family or people who you know are struggling with a family dynamic or just who, who may be inclined to, to want to know more about these things, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to invite them to church, specifically for the next few weeks as we're going to be focusing on the family and the family unit. But this week we're finishing up our series on the church, um, and so it's been a, a good five weeks. And, and I've had some people ask me, why uh, why I started with the church? Like, what was the point of starting here? Because we all have, you know, our own biases and tendencies and that sort of thing. But the reason I wanted to start with, with this series is because it's, it's a hard series to talk through. Um, this is a hard series for us, mostly because we have to look at ourselves in the mirror very, very closely when we're looking at the idea of the church and what the church should look like. And so I wanted to, uh, to have that extra dose of, of grace that you all are giving the new guy right now as I stepped on your toes on a regular basis. Uh, because I think it's an important thing for us to look in the mirror and see exactly what it is that we, we should be doing as the church. And I know I've stepped on some toes. I know that the Spirit has convicted people, including myself. I don't put myself on a pedestal or anything like that. I know that all of these things apply to me as well as as any person who calls Christ their savior. But, but the church is called to more than what the church is currently doing. And I'm not, again, as a reminder, I'm not talking about just F.B. Hanford. I'm talking about the capital C church. But we're called to more than what the church is currently doing. And because I believe that so deeply, I thought that we needed to get back to basics. I thought we needed to get back to the things that, that we should be holding dear. So today, uh, we end the series by talking about the fact that the church needs an oikos. The church needs an oikos, and I've been hinting at this, and I've said that word a couple different times, but oikos is a Greek word that means household. It means household. And we're using it to denote anyone that you would find within your sphere of influence. 
And so if you want to take that word literally and your household, then you're responsible for the people who are in your home. So if you are a, a, a young family like myself and my wife, then, then that oikos would be me and my wife and our five lovely energetic boys who seem to get more energetic when they're in an RV traveling 1,400 miles, but that's different. So if you're going to take it literally, it's that. But we're talking about your sphere of influence, your 8 to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Michael Green, he's an author, he wrote the book Evangelism in the Yearly Church, observes that the, the New Testament church vigorously adhered to the oikos principle as its primary strategy for a Christian advance. Early Christians understood that when the message of faith was heard and demonstrated by friends and by family, receptiveness to the gospel increased exponentially. I believe uh, oikos flourished in the early church because of two foundational characteristics, and we're going to talk through them a little bit today, but integrity and life transformation, and we'll get to those, but integrity and life transformation. Because if the people you regularly come into contact with see you living the lifestyle you claim to represent, then you have chips in the bank with that person. They recognize that what you say you believe is actually what it is that you believe. And that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because we come to church on Sunday and we put on our church clothes, we put on our Jesus clothes, we put on our Jesus face and our Jesus mask, and we do those things. People walk in and say, hey, how are you today? I'm great. God bless you, brother. And then you go out into the, the world and your response isn't the same. As we're living one way on Sunday and a different way on, on Monday. They need to see that the lifestyle you claim to represent would actually represent Christ. Conversely, the person in your oikos will also be keenly aware if you exhibit a lack of integrity. And so if they know that you go to church, if they know that you would call yourself a Christ follower, and then the way that you interact with them at work or the way that you interact with them in the line at Starbucks or the way that you would interact with them as you're dropping your kids off at school, right? Stressful areas of people's life, young families' lives. The way that you interact with them there is not the same way that you should be interacting, is not representative of Christ, then they would be keenly aware of that. It would be a lack of integrity. What we have become and, and who we are becoming is the testimony of Christ's transforming power in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, and all things become new. And I tell you all of that to get to this. When I was in high school, there was a man by the name of Maynard Medifin. Yeah, you laugh at his name. His name's Maynard but he was, uh, he was a couple different things in my, in my sphere. Uh, he was my science teacher, um, and so he taught me everything about, actually, uh, I say science. He, uh, he, he made me fall in love with the national park system, specifically Yosemite, because he was a, a mounted ranger in Tuolumne for 25 summers. And so, so when he would be done with teaching, he would head up to the backcountry in Yosemite and patrol on a horse for three months. 
was awesome. He told me some crazy stories. But the reason he got to tell me those stories is because it wasn't just science. He, he, he had a class accredited or whatever it's called for high school. I don't know if that's accredited or not. But he had a, a class for, for high school, specifically for high school, juniors and seniors. It was called Sierra Nevada. And we took the entire year, and all we did was learn about the Sierra Nevada. It was incredible. And so he was my science teacher. Beyond the fact he was my science teacher, he was also my best friend's dad. Yeah, my best friend, his name's Caleb, uh, but he's my best friend's dad. And so I got to go to his house all the time. He had this back room in his classroom that he let us use as our lockers instead of using the lockers with all the normal folk over there. We got his, his back room and we had a mirror up there and we would go eat back there. It was fantastic. Right? So he was my best friend's dad. And the last thing that he was, he was my FCA advisor. For those of you who don't know, FCA is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he was the advisor there. And now, like I said, Mr. Medivin was man's man. So if you saw, like if he heard you giggle at his name like some of you did, you wouldn't if you saw this guy, right? He's like six foot four. He's got four boys, so testosterone runs, he runs heavy in this man. Okay, he's like six foot four, has the deepest voice you could ever imagine, but he is the jolliest man in the world. Like if you could imagine the way that Santa laughs, that would be Mr. Medifin's laugh, okay? Like super deep and super jolly and all that stuff. He's got the thickest mustache you've ever seen, and his hair and his mustache are both stark white. And as, as a matter of fact, I remember he was trying to relive his glory days my senior year, and he tried to dye his hair black like it used to be, and it was a beautiful shade of purple for two weeks. <laughs> it's beautiful. But, uh, but one day I was, at, I was at Caleb's house, like I said, his, his son. Um, and we were hanging out, and, and we were in his parents' room for some reason, whatever reason it was. And I, I used the restroom. As I came out, I saw in the mirror a list of names. And at the top of that list of names were, were, was, was Colleen Medifin. And that was his wife. And then Jed Medifin, and then Grant Medifin, and then Seth Medifin, and then Caleb Medifin. And I was like, Caleb, this is great. And so all five of his, his, his family members, his immediate family is there. And then below that, there were a couple other names I didn't know. And I kept reading down to about name like number 26, 27, 28, whatever the last number was. And my name was on there too. I was like, what? Caleb, why does your dad have my name written down in his bathroom on his mirror? That's a, that's a weird thing. <laughs> Um, but this list was people who, while, while Mr. Medifin was shaving in the morning, he would go through this list and pray for these people by name. And so he would start with his family, and then after his family, he would get to those people who were in his immediate sphere of influence, and then all the way down until he got to Peter. And I'm sure, like, he's done shaving and just like, and Peter too. Okay, great. I'll take it. <laughs> uh... But he didn't just pray for me. He didn't just pray for me. He had, he had conversations with me about faith and how to follow Christ in high school, about what it meant to be a Christian, even when being a Christian wasn't necessarily cool. He understood the culture of high school because he had been a high school teacher for decades. And so he had hard conversations with me. He, he gave me and Caleb grace when he caught us smoking cigars in his backyard. And he held our feet to the fire when the things that we were doing were unbecoming to Christ. He exercised grace and truth in our life. But above all, he prayed for us and he sought out opportunities to bring us closer to Jesus. Mr. Medifin still prays for me. 
It's crazy. He still prays for me, and his list is like a thousand people long, and I'm like, you're, like, you shaved super slow now, Mr. Med, because that list is, it, it takes forever. But he prayed for us and sought out opportunities to bring us closer to Jesus, and that's really the heartbeat of Oikos. That's the idea of Oikos, finding opportunities to bring people you already know closer to God, introducing them to Jesus. Because the reality is that, that most of us in the room today have professed faith in Christ and, and we can get stuck in this perpetual cycle of knowing that we need to talk to people about Jesus and then interacting with people and getting nervous about talking to people about Jesus and then coming back to church and feeling guilty, but then the pastor then reminds you that you need to tell people about Jesus and then the cycle just continues and continues and continues and you feel more and more guilty and you interact with people, but because you didn't do it last time, how am I brave enough to do it this time? And it just perpetuates itself over and over and over again. And I'd be willing to bet that there are people in this room who have people they know and love in their life who do not have a relationship with God. If you took a second and thought about it, every single one of you could think of someone that you know and love who do not yet have a relationship with Jesus. And beyond that, oftentimes we have no clue how to proclaim his name without being offensive. You know, we, lo- we, uh, we live in a culture where if you disagree with something or present a new idea to someone who, uh, who, who disagrees with you or who is contrary to your own, you get called a bigot. Or you get called that we're hateful. And so now there's fear associated with actually presenting the gospel or talking to somebody about what Jesus has done in your own life for fear of being called a bigot. We need to put that idea behind us and, and recognize that it's estimated that only about 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelism. That's the estimate, 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelism. And because of that, the rest of us need a way to introduce people to Jesus. Because it's still our responsibility, even if we don't have that gifting. It's still our responsibility to introduce people to Jesus because we love them enough to do so. And the nice thing is the Bible's very clear about this very clear about this, and and, and evangelism doesn't have to be some scary, intimidating word. That word in itself carries so much baggage and so much intimidation that oftentimes what happens is we hear about, well, you need to evangelize to people, and you're like, okay, I'm going to grab my tracks, and I'm going to go out to a street corner and talk to people about how how they need Jesus, and if they don't find Jesus, they're going to hell. I'm like, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. The idea of of evangelism is actually incredibly simple. It needs to be a regular part of our life. Evangelism, it, it, it's a lifestyle. And the weird thing is about evangelism is it actually starts with Christmas. You're like, wait, what? That's a weird thing to say because that's, that Christmas and evangelism doesn't usually jive. That's an opportunity to celebrate little, little baby Jesus. But the birth of Christ is something we in the church world call the Incarnation. And the incarnation was essentially a military invasion. And that's your first point. The incarnation was essentially a military invasion. That's what Christmas is. And it's hard for us to comprehend that because my idea of celebrating Christmas is Chinese food after after Christmas Eve services and before going home to open up one present, which are always matching pajamas that we then put on and take pictures of year after year, even though everybody hates doing it, 
right? Like that's my, that's most of our idea. I know it's weird. We eat Chinese food. It, it was it's a long story, and I'll tell you about it later. But that's our tradition. That's what we think of when we get to Christmas, and it's the next morning, and it's better to give than to receive. But really, you're super excited about all the things that you're receiving, right? And your kids, especially, they're sprinting out there. It's 5 a.m. You're like, go back to bed. Santa doesn't come for kids who wake up before 6:30. And <laughs> And to a lot of us, that's what Christmas is. That's what we think about when, it, when we think about Christmas. But Christmas was essentially a military invasion. This isn't stockings in Santa Claus. This is D-Day. This is D-Day. John 12, 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. This was the Allies storming the beaches of Normandy to take a stronghold over an enemy who had reigned for far too long. And unlike this massive military assault that happened on June 6th in 1944, where America and the Allies lost thousands and thousands and thousands of men in the first few weeks of combat, this was a quiet invasion. Very few people understood what was happening. Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew that she was with child, but she also knew that she had never been with a man, not even Joseph, to whom she was engaged. She had learned of her pregnancy and what was to be a virgin birth when an angel told her that she was pregnant with the Son of God. Now, for many, including, in, including Joseph, the doctrine of the virgin birth is hard to accept. Guys in the room, could you imagine... If your wife came to you and said, I'm pregnant, and you had never, ever once been with your wife. And then on top of that, she said, but don't worry, it's God. <laughs> That's a really hard doctrine to accept. Can you consider the amount of faith that Joseph would have to have in order to accept that type of doctrine? But the God who could speak the entire universe into being, who could create hum human life, could certainly choose to make himself known by the power of the Holy Spirit through a virgin. Most of, mo most of the people in Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth were, ex were expecting a messianic invasion. They were expecting what we saw on D-Day, or what happened on D-Day. Conquerors in armor, bringing a sword to set people free from oppression. And Jesus only added to, to the confusion of the whole thing, of the people who knew him, when he announced, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and be believe the good news, it says in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe, this is a spiritual invasion, where God has sent his son to claim back what was his from the beginning. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Devil, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians makes it clear that this is the battle that we're going to have to fight. It's a, it is a spiritual battle for the souls of those people who you know and love already, who we know and love already. This is a spiritual battle. This is urgent. This is happening now. 
Our objective then, what is it? It's to save the lost. That's our objective, save the lost. If this is a military invasion and all military invasions have an objective, our objective is this, save the lost. Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. To save the lost. Why did the Son of Man come? Why did Jesus come? To save the lost. That's the goal of the church. To save the lost. Those of us who have decided to put their faith in Christ were saved from an eternity without God. It's now our responsibility to return the favor to somebody else to introduce them to Jesus. It's our job to let people know that Jesus came to save us, and apart from him, there is nothing good. That is our responsibility. That being a good person isn't enough. Because Scripture tells us that no one is good, not even one, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That believing in some sort of higher power isn't enough, because narrow is the path that leads to salvation. That God laid out his plan of salvation by reconciling us back to him through his son who died on our behalf so we could spend eternity with him. The people we love should get our love by sharing his love. The people we love should get our love by sharing his love. But how? 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 What is our strategy? Here's our strategy. Ready? Our strategy? Build his church. Build his church church. Matthew 16, 18. It says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church. Ephesians 4, 11, 13, 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we, reach mature, or re, until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We need one another in order to make this happen. This is not a standalone thing. We need the gifts of every believer in order to be encouraged, in order to be taught, in order to be exhorted. And all the other things, all the other gifts in order for us to make this thing work. Life change is a slow process. It takes a village of people to make happen. So not being attached to a local church will be an issue. If you're here this morning and you don't have a church that you would call your home, we hope that it's ours. If it's not, find another one. If you walk away today and you say, you know what, that Pastor Peter, he's not really my cup of tea. He was a little bit mean this morning when he talked about sharing my faith. And so because of that, I want to go find it. Great, go find another place. The one option that you don't have is to not be plugged into a local church somewhere. You have to be, because that is our responsibility, is to build up the church. It's to build up the church. Because the Holy Spirit has equipped the fellowship of the saints, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, right, in order for us to reach a unity and to become mature so we can better influence more people. So as we become unified and as we become mature, we then can tell more people about Jesus, and as we tell more people about Jesus, and they come into the fold, and then as they become, come into the fold, they become more unified, and they become more mature, and on and on and on and on it should go. And that's the idea. Like, that's the whole idea here, is that we need the church. We need the local church. That should be our strategy, to build the church. 
When I was a, uh, when I was a senior in high school, um, I, uh, I, and I told you guys a few weeks back, but I, uh, I went to like 10 different youth groups throughout my high school career. Um, I was super religious. Um, and uh, my senior year, I was relatively plugged in with this, this new church, uh, and I had been going there my junior year, my senior year. And the pastor there, he had, he had come to lunch every single week to meet us at lunch. The youth pastor came every single week to meet us for lunch. And like I said, we were in Mr. Medifin's classroom because we were too cool for everybody else. Um, at least we thought. We were playing paper football. Um, so we weren't cool. Um, but he would come every single week, and he would bring us sub sandwiches, and we would hang out, and we would talk, and we would be there in the midst of, of, of that fellowship, right? And he would challenge us, and I distinctly remember a time when he came, and we had about six months, five months, somewhere in there, uh, left in our high school career. And he said, and I forgot how the, the subject came up, but he essentially said, hey, when are you going to bring more people from your high school? To church. What do you mean? <laughs> we are all you need, Scott. We're fine. Um, he's like, no, because the sad thing is, is we had, a, we had a high school that was about 20 minutes away from that church, and so there were other high schools that were closer to that church and had more students from those other high schools. And so he's like, you know, I just, I don't know if I'm going to come back next year once you guys are gone. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he eventually, he essentially, he, he challenged us because of the fact that, that he said, once you guys graduate and you cannot come to high school anymore, you cannot come to high school, they call it fellowship, high school fellowship anymore, there's no reason for me to come back here because there's no one for me to shepherd. There's no one for me to pour into because you guys haven't done a good enough job of bringing people behind you. See, all we cared about was ourselves. And it's one thing for us to build up the local church, but we can't build the local church once and stop. We can't get to a point where we say, you know what? Church is good. I like everybody here. We're learning and growing and maturing, period. It's not how it works. Because building up the local church, it's building. We are continuing to do so. And so Scott challenged us, and us being like the alpha males that we were, we're like, how dare you challenge us? We're going to do all the things. And so we, we ended up inviting some more people, and I think he came back to school the next year. I'm not really sure. But by the time he had talked to us about it, it was too late. Because all of the, all of the relational equity that we had was, I mean, we were all about ourselves. We were all about what we were doing. We were all about the games that were happening at youth group rather than being about what the things that actually mattered in the midst of it, which was Jesus and making sure we were introducing people to Jesus. The parallels are relatively easy to see in the midst of the local church that we cannot be okay building something and stopping. Building local church is a continuous process. We have to continue to bring people into the fold. We have to continue to bring people in to the local church because the Holy Spirit, like I said, has equipped us all perfectly in unity to mature people. And as we become more mature, we can invite more people into the fold. That's how it works. So that's our strategy but what would our tactic be? So our tactic is to leverage transformational relationships. Leverage transformational relationships. Now I'm not asking you, because when, uh, when we talk about evangelism, that's what a lot of people think, is I'm going to go out to the street corner or um, I'm going to go hand out tracks door to door, knock on people's doors. Hey, have you heard about 
Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and they shut the door on your face, and you go to the next door, and you go to the next door, and over it. That's not evangelism, okay? We're talking about this idea of lifestyle evangelism. So we need to, like we said, leverage transformational relationships. I'm asking you to simply leverage relationships that you all already have, that we all already have. And that's what Jesus asked a bunch of guys to do. He kept telling them to go home. We talked about that last week, right? And we talked about the demoniac in Mark 5.19, where it says, uh, it says, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Or how Jesus talked to Zacchaeus in Luke 19.9. And it said, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus went home to the people that he knew, went home to the people that he had relationships with. Or in Mark 2, where he talks to Levi, the tax collector at the time. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Think about that. Think about who was at Levi's house. There were sinners and tax collectors, people who were hated regularly hated by the Jewish culture specifically because they were under operating underneath Roman rule at the time. And so anybody who was a tax collector was essentially operating for Rome. And so as they're operating for Rome and then, and then milking these people for money, milking the, like, like the people who are in their culture for money, they would have hated these people. And so the sinners and the tax collectors that it's talking about here would have never interacted with Jesus and his disciples. They would have stayed away from there because they were hated. But guess whose house they would go to? Their friends. And what did their friend do? What did Levi do? He simply invited Jesus into the mix. Here's my buddy. Here's my friend, Jesus. I met him today. He changed my life. I want you to meet him too. And that's what he did. That's what Levi did. Or, or Peter talking in the book of Acts, Acts eleven fourteen says, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. You and all your oikos, that word household right there in the Greek is oikos, will be saved. Scripture is very clear about this. So I told you that that, that, that youth pastor came to my high school on a regular basis. So when I became a youth pastor, I realized, I, I recognized how important that was to me as a student because every single Wednesday I could count on Scott coming to school and encouraging me and I wouldn't bring lunch and I'd pay him five bucks and he'd pick up Subway for me and it was great and it was just an opportunity for him to check in with us and for us to check in with him and be challenged in our week and everything like that. It was great. So I made that a part of my ministry as soon as I became a youth pastor. I didn't do it every week but I did it as often as I could. And I didn't necessarily even do it so I could meet new people. I went so I could encourage the people who were already there. And as I was there, guess what they did? They introduced me to their friends. And I'm not saying I'm Jesus. Hear me on that. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. But, but as I walked up and I would have pizza for them, be like, hey, guys, how's it going? How's your day going? Blah, blah, blah. You know pizza, like, attracts high school students like flies? It's crazy. You walk on, like, and more recently, when I was in Southern California, I'd get, like, Del Taco, the Fiesta packs, and I'd be carrying four of those bad boys in, and I would have, like, a trail of people, like, following me. It was awesome. But I'd bring food and just, like, be there talking with my students and that sort of thing, and guess what would happen? They'd say, hey, this is my friend so-and-so. 
like, oh man, hey, nice to meet you, and just talk with them, and not, I, I, and I couldn't invite them to youth group, I couldn't proselytize, I couldn't do that sort of thing, I couldn't invite them anywhere, but guess what that did for my students? It gave them an opportunity to invite them, it gave them an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, this is what I believe, that was my youth pastor, Hey, on Wednesday nights, guess what we do? We get together, and we play a bunch of games, and we sing some songs, and we learn about Jesus, and we break up into small groups, and we go home. And, and, and Peter's there, and our other leaders are there. It's a great time. You guys should come check it out. And so what I did was essentially I helped them leverage the relationships that they already had. What's more, what's more helpful, me doing that or me standing outside the gates of the school saying, Jesus loves you! Hey, everybody, Jesus loves you, and if you don't recognize that, you're going to go to hell. It's not effective. It's not helpful. We're leveraging relationships that we already have with people in order to introduce them to Jesus. Over and over and over again, we see people who are transformed by just these small acts of obedience, of leveraging the relationships they already have and being obedient in the midst of them being obedient in the midst of them. So not necessarily just asking them about their day, but asking them about their spiritual condition. We get so nervous as Christians to bring up Jesus, and I don't know why. We get so nervous about it. Did you know that, that people who know you're a Christian actually expect you to talk about Jesus? Isn't that crazy? Like that, when I was a youth pastor, when I was younger, a lot younger, I started when I was like 22, um, and I was nervous to ask my students about how they were doing with Jesus. I was nervous about it. And it blew my, like, once I got to a place of being like, wait, what? Like, they're at church. They expect me to ask them about how they're doing with their relationship with God. It blew my mind. And it's the same thing with anybody who calls Christ their Savior. Is that if people know, and they should know, if people know you are a follower of Jesus, they will expect you to talk about Jesus. It will not shock them, I promise. They expect you to talk, and it's those small acts of obedience over and over and over again. The idea of oikos, it's not a program. It's not something that we're gonna implement for a few months and be like, all right, oikos is done, let's figure out a new church growth model. That's not what it is. It's not an evangelism program. Oikos is a lifestyle. Well, it costs a way for you to recognize there's people that you love in your life who don't yet know Jesus, and you may be the only person who can tell them about him. That's what oikos is. That's what evangelism is. That's what lifestyle evangelism is. It's your responsibility to change their world. And the church, for 2,000 years, has existed for one reason, and that's to change the world. That's the purpose of the church, to change the world. And I'm not saying it's, it's my responsibility or, or one of your responsibilities to go out and tell everybody about Jesus, because we know how that goes. If, everybody, it's, if it's everybody's job or it's just my job to, to tell everybody about something, then I'm not going to tell anybody about something, because it's too overwhelming. I'm not going to be able to get to it. It's too daunting of a job. But guess what you are able to do? You are able to tell those people that you already have a relationship about Jesus. That's what you are able to do. That's what we're all able to do. So how do we do it? That's the question. 
And I already told you that God has supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people in your life to impact for the kingdom of God. 8 to 15 people. That's oikos. And 8 to 15, it's not a strategic, or, or it is a strategic number. It's not a scientific number, rather. It's not you saying you have to have between 8 and 15. For some of you who are like me, you may be a little bit more of an introvert. And you're like, you know what? The people that I am going to be able to impact for the kingdom of God might be a lot less as far as my personal interactions. Okay, so you may be down in like five, six, seven area. For others of you who may be extroverts, and God bless you, maybe 27, 28, 30, I don't know, however many people it is. But maybe that's how many people you have. So it's not a scientific number, it's about an average number. But God has supernaturally and strategically placed them into your life to impact them for the kingdom of God. These people may be your neighbors, your co-workers, your local barista, your grocery store clerk, parents on your kid's sports team, your hairdresser, your professor, your physical therapist, your roommate, your business associate, and your mechanic, your waiter at the restaurant, your dog groomer, your gardener, your carpool buddies, your dentist. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about who these people could be that you interact with on a regular, your mailman, that you interact with on a regular basis. Latest statistics from a guy named Tom Rayner. He's written some great books on churches. States that 96% of unchurched people are open to attending church if a loved one or a friend invited them. 96% of unchurched people would be open to coming to church if a loved one invited them. Loved one or a friend. That's, cra that, that's crazy percentages, 96%. Like, have I ever got 96% on anything? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Woo! But I definitely didn't study for it. But 96%. Think about those people that you already know and love who, who don't yet know Jesus. Nine and a half out of ten of them would come to church with you. I don't know where the half comes in, but nine, at least nine of them would be open to coming to church with you. There are people within your oikos just waiting for an invite to church. Mark 5.19, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has, mercy, has had mercy on you. It goes back to, I mean, Jesus sent the demoniac home. Go home. Just simply tell them what I did for you. Go home. Tell them what I did for you. God has been working in their lives, and, and we get to serve as that bridge that brings them closer to Christ. So here we go. How do we do it? First thing, make a list. Make a list. That's your first one. Make a list. On your list should be a few different types of people. And you have, you all should have a, a list on the inside of your program there, 1 to 15. If you need to use the back side of your paper, great. Use the back side of your paper. The first thing you need to do is you need to make a list. Any type A people in here that lists just make you super happy? Like, you write down, make a list on your list just so you can cross it off as soon as you're done? Yeah, some of you. <laughs> Amen. Woo! Type B's are in here just like, I'll remember it. I'll do it later. I get it. But make a list. And on your list should be a few different types of people. My list starts off with my immediate family. So one through six are taken up with my immediate family. My wife's on there and my five little boys are on there. Why? Because if I'm not doing that well, then I'm not going to do anything else well. Okay? So those are my first six people that I'm praying for because I know for a fact that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed those people in my life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. 
I need to be pressing forward in, in my relationship with God so that, so that my wife can see that relationship with God moving forward, so that she can press forward in hers and our kids can see us pressing forward in our relationship. And we have those conversations about Jesus so you can press forward. So those should be people on your list, your immediate family, people who are in your immediate home, your immediate household. And after that, there needs to be people that you have close friendships with who know Jesus and need to be continually encouraged towards Jesus. So those are people that would be maybe in your Bible studies or your small groups or people that you sit next to at church or people that you know are believers at work that just need to be continually encouraged. They should be on your list. And then after that, people who don't yet know Jesus. So people who are in your relational world who don't know who Jesus is yet. Or maybe they've heard of him and they're a priester. That's what we call Christmas and Easter attenders at church, right? But they come at Christmas and Easter, but outside of that, they have nothing to do with God. They have nothing to do with Jesus. They do it because it's tradition. So then those people should be on your list. And then lastly, people who know Jesus but who have since fallen away. So those are your four. Your immediate family, your people who already know Jesus, your people who don't know Jesus, and people who have met Jesus but have since fallen away. Those are your four categories. And as you look at your list, as you're filling out your list, you should have people in all of those categories. And if you don't have people in all of those categories, specifically the ones where you have people who don't yet know Jesus, then I would look at the social circles that you're running in and recognize that you need to be uh, a little bit more strategic in the social circles that you're a part of. Because if you don't know a non-believer... That's not a healthy place for a church to be. It's not a healthy place for a believer to be. We need to be consistently encouraging people towards faith. If we're going to build the church, the only way for us to build the church and not take from another building and put it in ours, not take bricks from another church and put it onto our church and bricks from another church put onto our church, if we're going to get new bricks, we have to know people who don't know Jesus yet. We have to be okay with that. So those are the four types of people who should be on your list. The second thing you need to do is pray for everyone on that list every single day. Pray for everyone on that list every day. That's your next blank. Pray for people on that list every day. Put that list somewhere you can see it. Be like Mr. Medifin. Tape it to your, your mirror while you're shaving for the guys, I'm assuming. Tape it on your dashboard. Put it on the glass underneath your desk. Put it in your Bible so when you wake up and you have your devotions in the morning and you're reading through Scripture and you get to the end, you're like, okay, I'm going I'm to pray now. You have that list of people in front of you. And it doesn't have to be these super long, super eloquent prayers. Just know what they need prayer for and just pray for them real quick. And specifically, like, if they don't know Jesus, the prayer is that simple. God, I pray for Caleb that he would come to know you. God, use me to introduce Caleb to you. And then you move on, and then you move on. But you have to pray for them every single day. They have to be on the forefront of your mind every single day. Your next one is invest time and resources into those relationships. Invest time and resources into those relationships. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where oftentimes um, we, we, we hear that we have to get out of our, our comfort zone. You have to be okay with taking that relationship, that friendship with people a little bit further. So if they're your kid, 
you need to challenge them specifically rather than just saying, hey, how was your day at school? You say, hey, how did you see God present at school today? Where did you see God working at school today? How did you encourage somebody at school today? Hey, do your friends know who Jesus is? And all of a sudden their minds are blown like, wait, there's people who don't know Jesus in the world? Because I get that. My, my kids, I mean, they went to Christian school for a while. They were in public school, Christian school. They are about to go back into public school. Like, they're going to be weirded out by the fact that people don't know who Jesus is at their school, who don't go to church every single week at school. And our kids need to be, but we have to take those relationships to the next step. If it's a coworker that you've worked with for a really long time, your friends with at the office, whatever, great. Invite them and their spouse over to have dinner with you and your spouse. Invite them to a movie so that way you can just sit there and not talk, but you still did something with them. Whatever it needs to be, you need to invest time and resources into those relationships. It's something as simple as bringing them coffee when they didn't ask for coffee. Just one day, find out their Starbucks order. Next day, run through the drive-thru real quick, grab their Starbucks, bring it to work. Say, hey, I just, I was thinking about you this morning. Here's, I, I thought I'd grab you, grab you your order. You know how far that goes regarding encouragement, regarding depth of relationship even? They recognize that you care about them outside of the spreadsheets that the two of you are working on. They recognize that. The next one is then invite them to church regularly. Invite them to church regularly. Because you can't do all of those things. You can't deepen relationships without the intentionality of inviting them to church once you deepen those relationships. We aren't just looking for best friends. We aren't looking for, for new friends. And we are, and they'll become friends, that's sort of, but that's not the point of, of all of this. We're trying to get people to have a relationship with Jesus. We're trying to introduce people to the Savior of the world so they can know the same good news and peace that we all have who already believe in Him. That's what we're trying to do. And if they say no... Ask them again later on. You know how you achieve a goal? You know how you achieve, like, vision? I've, a, I've been asked a lot about vision. What's our new vision for F.B. Hanford? And, and you'll know it when I say it because I'm going to be incredibly, annoyingly repetitive about it. And you'll get sick of it. And I'll say, well, I, you know where we're going. You'll get sick of it. You know where we're going. And it's the same principle here when you're talking to somebody about attending church. They'll get sick of it, but you'll, they'll know what you're about. And guess what? When tragedy strikes or triumph happens or whatever it may be, who are they going to turn to excited about the fact that something great or something terrible happened? They're going to turn to you knowing that you have a, an in-depth relationship with Jesus, that you have answers that they've been looking for that you have answers to questions that their life has posed because of circumstances that have just recently happened. You have to be annoyingly repetitive about inviting these people to church. And they may shrug it off, they may shrug it off, they may shrug it off. But they might say yes. And that's how we build the local church. And again, if they say no, ask them again later on. Next thing. Prepare to clearly display God's character and discuss your faith in Jesus. This will most likely spur on a conversation at some point. If you're inviting them to church, this is going to spur on a conversation with them at some point. So if you're inviting them to church, the way in which you interact with people better be above reproach. 
So if you're inviting them to church at 10 a.m., you better not be screaming at other employees at 11. It's the reality, because they recognize the things that you do. Is your character above reproach? Because if it's not, you inviting them to church is going to do them no good. It's going to do them zero good. And not only that, you, you need to be perched and ready to, to pounce as soon as the topic comes up or as soon as you see an opening in conversation. You have to be ready to share about Jesus. You cannot wait. And if you see an opening, take it and invite him to church and talk to him about Jesus. And if it falls by the wayside, that's okay. Wait for the next opportunity and take it. We have to stop sitting back on our laurels and assuming somebody else is going to do it for us. Because that's not how it works. And some people, some people ask about this whole, these whole five things. It doesn't it seem like a little shady, like a little formulaic, like a little bit, a little bit underhanded, almost insincere in the way that we're going about our friendships and going about our relationships. And my response would be no. My response would be that it is insincere to come to church and profess our love for Jesus on Sunday and then not profess that same love on Monday to people that we already love. That's insincere. We have to be sincere about our faith. This is a battle. This isn't fake. This is real, and we have to begin to take it seriously. Because there are people in Hanford who are going to hell who we already know, who we already work with, who we already talk to, who we are already related to, and this is urgent. Can you imagine what it would look like if everyone in here wrote out their oikos, right, prayed for them, and was annoyingly repetitive in inviting them to church? That we lived in such a way that we honored exactly what it is the scripture said. Even if it was just one person from our list, from each of our lists, one person. And then let's say only half of them showed up. Our church would grow by 150 people overnight. You want to talk about church growth? You want to talk about how the church needs to continue to build itself? This is how. It's a lifestyle of evangelism. It's not a program. It's not a preacher on stage. It's not music. It's not a children's program. It's a real relationship with Jesus that as you are living it out, you get to invite people into the fold and our church is built and our church is unified and our church is matured and it perpetuates itself over and over and over again. But if even one person came, from our orcos, from everybody, we double. And I'm not about just church size, but I want people to mature and know who Jesus is. And so then guess what happens when they come? You get another person to come, and they also get another person to come. And you know what that's called? That's called exponential growth. Because we're no longer just adding people. We are exponentially bringing people into the family of God. We are introducing them to Jesus. We're introducing them into a transformational way of life, a way that all of us already know the peace that we have because of Christ in our lives. And then we did it again, and then we did it again, and then we did it again. It would be incredibly hard for people in Hanford to go to hell because we simply did what the early church did, which was simply invest in relationships and introduce people to Jesus.
invest in relationships, and introduce people to Jesus, not the other way around. Invest in relationships and introduce people to Jesus. This week, here's your challenge. I want you guys to fill out your Oikos card, okay? That's your challenge this week. And I want you to pray about it first, pray about who's on there, and think really, really hard about it. Because a lot of you are thinking right now, I don't have an Oikos. And you're wrong. You do. All of us do. God has supernaturally and strategically placed people in our lives that we are most effective at impacting for the kingdom of God. So I want you to pray about that list. And like I said, maybe you're an introvert and you get to four and you're like, I'm exhausted just writing four people's names down. Great. Stop. And pray for those people and commit to those five steps. Maybe you're an extrovert, like I said, that's great. You do that too. Put it somewhere that you want to put it and you begin to pray for those people. You begin to just follow those steps and wait to see the doors that God is going to open for you because honestly, they've been there all along. It's not that God's opening new doors. He's giving you vision to see the doors that have been open for a really long time. So that's all I want you to do this week is write that down and pray for those people. Write down that list and pray for those people. And I want you to commit to doing that, to praying for those people indefinitely. Because like I said, it's not a program. We're not doing this for two months and then when, when the church gets big enough to support the, the financial needs, we're going to stop. Because that's not what church is about. Growing the church and building the church is about letting people know who Jesus is and glorifying his name and praising his name and introducing people to Jesus and introducing people to Jesus and growing disciples and growing followers and introducing people to Jesus. The role of the church is to change the world. You cannot change the world by yourself, but you can change someone's world by yourself. You and the Holy Spirit get the opportunity to speak into the lives of people that you already know and love. So leverage those opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're thankful for the church. We're thankful for the Capital C Church. We're thankful for F.B. Hanford. And God, I didn't do this series just to frustrate people or to step on toes or to wh whatever. God, I did this series for us to recognize that there are times that we need to get back to basics. We need to recognize the things that we are supposed to do on a regular basis. And God, you know that, that I am chief of these sinners. That I get distracted just as we all do away from the point of the local church. That it's not merely a social club, that it's not just a place for us to get filled up and hang out with our friends, that it's a place for us to prepare for battle. That we recognize that the incarnation of Christ was D-Day. And so, Father, uh, I just pray you would give us boldness. I pray you would bring our oikos to the forefront of our minds. I pray that we would, be, we would be able to recognize those people that you have both supernaturally and strategically placed in our lives to make an impact for your kingdom. I pray we would recognize those people and that we would pray for them regularly and pray for an opportunity to invite them to church, pray for an opportunity to talk to them about you. God, that our lives would be so reflective of who you are that people would even ask questions of us about the life that we're living and why we look different. 
But God, I pray you would give us a spirit of boldness. I pray we would go from here and recognize there are people going to hell. And we have an answer for it. And we simply need to introduce them to your son. And God, if there are are people in here who don't yet know you, maybe this is their first time or they've been going for a while but haven't yet placed their faith in you, Father, I pray that, that they would pray this along with me. And then if they have questions afterwards or anything like that, they can come and talk to me or Pastor Jeff, but with, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. If there are people in here who don't yet know you, Father, I pray that first they would admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. That Romans tells us that, that we're all sinners in need of God's, God's Son, in need of your Son. All of us have fallen short. And that B would believe that you sent your Son to die on a cross on our behalf. God, you sent your son to seek and save the lost, and that's how that's how he accomplished it, by going to the cross on our behalf, by dying on our behalf and raising again, conquering death. That you would believe, that we would believe that he did that, and C, that we would choose to follow him every single day. That this isn't just a prayer, this is a lifestyle change that we are choosing to follow your son. And that goes for people, Father, who are brand new to faith as of right now, or people who have been a part of the faith for 70 years. God, I pray that we would choose to follow you, choose to follow your word, and look at the early church and the things that they did, the things that they did correctly, the things that we should be doing our best to emulate. God, I pray for life change. And not just for us, but for the people who are on the Oikos as well. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you all. You guys have a good week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.